This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 53rd edition of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. I have a very special guest today on this 53rd edition. The guest is Ryan Divish. Ryan covers the Seattle Mariners as the beat writer for the Seattle Times. He's up to many other things as well. Before I get back to this interview with Ryan, I want to go over some housekeeping things here at Rainier Avenue Radio. I want to recognize my engineer today, Daniel Bellis. Daniel's also the host of Fresh Juice at Rainier Avenue Radio. Our sports department has a lot of good things going on. You can find us on the World Wide Web at RainierAvenueRadio.world. We have sports shows hosted by Rick Dupree, Granville Emerson, Ronald Laurent. Masvita Marari hosts a show. Pat McCarthy and Masvita host a show on the Seattle Metro Sports Conference. So Masvita has two shows going on. Mark Bryant has a fitness-based show. And Juan Cotto and Mike Cobrizi host a show. So go to RainierAvenueRadio.world to listen to our sports shows other shows. Um, my show Sports and Stuff has been around since July 2017. You can listen to my archived interviews on my law firm website, pluslawoffices.com or Mixcloud. And you can see my interview announcements on my Twitter and Facebook pages. Okay, Ryan, let me go back to you. Uh, Ryan Divish has covered the Seattle Times now since about 2014. Previously, Ryan worked for the Tacoma News Tribune, I believe, from about 2006 through 2013, where he covered the Seattle Mariners, UW football, the Tacoma Rainiers. Ryan grew up in Montana. He played college baseball at Dickinson State University in South, South Dakota. Mr. Divish has been frequently interviewed on various Seattle sports stations. He's the host of the Extra Innings podcast, and he has his great Sunday mailbag mail call in the Seattle Times where he answers questions and gives great analysis about the Mariners and baseball. Uh, nobody follows the Mariners like Ryan Divish does. Well, Ryan, I really appreciate you coming on Sports and Stuff on RainierAvenueRadio.world. Great. Ryan, I, let's make sure... That was like my... Well, you got a lot of stuff going on, so so what the heck. By the way, Ryan, you know, people call John Clayton the professor for his football knowledge. Can I call you the scientist for your baseball knowledge? Uh, I don't know if I have that much. I don't know if I have that kind of knowledge like John Clayton. I mean, that guy is next level. Well, give me the apprentice. I didn't call you the apprentice. I called you the scientist. No, that, I, yeah, I don't know if I'm a scientist. Well, you're being humble and self-deprecating. Well, Ryan, you know, we've been reading you for years in the Seattle media. We've listened to you on sports shows. I've listened to your podcasts. But why don't you share with us a little bit how you got the bug to go into sports journalism? I was like, I 
I'd like to try and do this. I want to write like this. And uh, so that was kind of the day that the idea of being a sports writer came into my mind. And, and I started reading, you know, Sports Illustrated in a different way than I had ever had before. Not so much about the content, but also about the writing and appreciating the writing. And, and that's kind of where it was born. And then, you know, when I went to North Dakota to play baseball, I didn't have journalism. Uh, they had teaching. I had a teaching degree, but I, I did my student teaching. I realized I didn't really like kids very much. So I uh, convinced my family to let me go back to the University of Montana and get my journalism degree because uh, I would be the worst teacher of all time otherwise. <laughs> well, you got the bug to be a journalist. It seems like a young age. By the way, uh, Ryan, tell us about playing baseball at Dickinson State University. I- I'm sorry, is it North Dakota or South Dakota? And the league is pretty good. Uh, our team wasn't great. My junior was our best team. Um, you know, it was just something I, when I got came out of high school, and obviously Montana is not a hotbed of high school baseball talent. And, you know, they don't even have high school baseball. They have a legion season that runs from April until the end of August. Um, you know, I, just, I had some opportunities at some junior colleges that I was also kind of banged up, and I just didn't know if I really wanted to keep doing it. And then, uh, so I went to school, and I thought I just wanted to be done. And that freshman, by my first year and a half of just going to be a regular student, I gained about 41 pounds, and I just didn't really have kind of an interest in anything. I missed the structure of school. I had kind of ADD, so I needed the structure of having, like, practice every day and everything like that. So a friend of mine was at Dickinson and mentioned that, you know, maybe the coach was so interested in me coming out there if I was still interested in playing, and, so I just decided I needed something, so I, I transferred in a bit season. And uh, I remember I showed up as an infielder, and the coach was less than degrees to see a 211-pound infielder, or second baseman, they uh-huh. totally I think two days in, he handed me a catcher's glove and said, here, here you go, this is your this is your new position. And so that's what I transitioned to. But you were a college catcher then? Yeah, yeah, I was a catcher. By, by the way, you mentioned an ADD diagnosis. You, you've definitely had a very successful career with ADD, and I think that's uh, pretty inspirational for many uh, people who are going through that uh, that condition. Well, um, Ryan... I mean, I was kind of lucky. They didn't have that back when, you know, when we were in school. I'm 44, so when I was in school, they didn't have ADD. That was my diagnosis. You know, I remember as a kid having to get my eyes checked and my hearing tested and everything because I wasn't paying attention in class and I was acting out and you know and, and everybody thought that it's because I couldn't see the board or I couldn't hear what the teacher did and no I just I couldn't say on task but you know I've been able to deal with it I never had to go on medication uh, significantly through my youth and they didn't really know what it was I mean it wasn't until I got older until I was actually in my classes for education that I realized that this is what I've been dealing with doctors kind of you know, works with me, so I didn't have to do that. You know, there are times when it gets good or bad. You know, when you're in a stadium and it gets loud, there are people around that can be a little difficult, but I've learned to kind of deal with it. Yeah, you've done really well. I have some of those challenges myself, so I can certainly relate to some of the struggles you had when you were younger. Well, Ryan, you recently covered the Edgar Martinez Hall of Fame ceremony in Cooperstown, New York. Um, I see on... I believe Facebook, you had the joy of attending the ceremony with your father. Really neat. Well, Cooperstown is basically known as a, as a Disneyland for baseball fans. Tell us a little bit 
about the Edgar Hall of Fame induction experience that maybe people do, did not see on TV? Give us a couple of little behind-the-scenes things that occurred uh, during the celebration. Unbelievably warm there. Uh, the heat index was really high. A lot of humidity. There had been rain almost every day there, and so the humidity was always really up. So, uh, you know, they, they didn't zoom too close in on the Hall of Famers. Like when we talked to Edgar after the speech, he had sweated through his entire shirt underneath his his jacket, you know, because it's just so warm up there. And, uh, wow. It was, you know, I don't know if they could show the, the, the number of people. I think they were say like 60,000. It, it just stretches back for miles and miles. I mean, it had a town of, a, a town of about 1,500 people. So you're talking about a town that normally has 1,500, I think, three stoplights, and all of a sudden 55,000 people invade that city or that little place. So it can be a little overwhelming, like the traffic, the congestion, but it's... The one thing that I think people don't realize, and it's, it's very true, I know I talked to people about this, is like, when you get there, obviously you're representing the, you know, you're representing the team that they're there for, the player, you know, obviously there's Maris, sure. Yankee fans, but it's a collective just baseball experience. Everybody just talks baseball. You're not, you know, you're not, there's no rivalries per se. You know, you're just happy to be there and talk about baseball. Everybody's kind of just this big community, and, and that's different. You know, the, you have these, all these factions throughout the season, like Red Sox versus Yankees, Saints versus Dodgers, all that stuff. But when you're in Cooperstown and, and the singularity of the Hall of Fame and all that it needs, that really kind of knocks down those walls, and it's kind of cool to see what an experience. I, I, that Cooperstown's definitely on my bucket list. I, I just love getting a little more insights from you. And if we had some more time, we'd talk more about uh, your Hall of Fame ceremony experience watching Edgar get in. But I want to hit on a few other topics. This is Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with Seattle Times beat writer Ryan Divish. Ryan's been covering the Mariners for many years, and I have as my engineer today and producer Daniel Bellis. So, Ryan, I read a column you wrote today. I, I think it came out yesterday in the Seattle Times. It was a column about the rise and fall of Felix Hernandez. And although Felix is certainly financially okay, do you fi- did you find that column to be one of maybe the saddest columns you've written on many levels? I just read that article and found it to be quite sad. What's your take on that? Do, did you see it that way, Ryan? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was sad. You know, I certainly didn't go in that thinking I was going to write about Felix. Honestly, I didn't know he was throwing the live batting practice session. I thought it was today. But he threw that, and we watched it, and it looked bad. And, you know, you're in there, and we were talking to him about about it, and for whatever reason, and kind of what I wrote, with most of the team out of the field doing other things, you know, there wasn't anything for him to do in there. He was just kind of waiting. And so I think we talked to him a little bit more, and, and he got very reflective on some things that, you know, not always players want to talk about um, future and all this stuff. But I thought it was... You know, once you saw that he was in that kind of mood to talk, you kind of just keep pushing and asking stuff. And, and I, I mean, I, mentally I was kind of prepared to write, you know, the, uh, the he's leaving or the, the day that he leaves, you know, last time this year because, I've, I, you know, I've known kind of for a while that, that neither side really wants to keep this going. You know, Felix doesn't really have much of a relationship with Jerry DePoto and Scott Service. And, and 
you know, he's also not part of their plans. I mean, he, the last four years has been steady decline, and, and he struggled. And, you know, they're trying to get younger and give other guys opportunities. So, you know, you kind of know that this isn't going to happen. But, uh, I, I, you know, you, you start writing, and then kind of the emotion of the moment takes you over, and you start looking at all the stuff and say, I'm going to, you know, write it this way, and then, and then not even and go from there. But yeah, once I get kind of going, and I have a tendency to listen to like sad country music <laughs> I'm writing, so that, that, that probably played into it too. But you, you know, it is, it is different to see the end of an icon, you know, like, and also see that he, he's finally realized his baseball mortality, that he doesn't know how he's gotten here and what his future is like. I mean, you, you know, he's probably going to have to sign a minor league contract next year if he wants to play. And five years ago, that seemed like an impossibility. Right, you know, right. It, it just, you know, and so that's, you know, and I'm already kind of mentally preparing to work about, you know, the ups and downs. I mean, if you think I've written so much about this guy because he has been the most fascinating player in my history that I've covered. You know, I've covered each year and I've covered Ricky, but for me, you know, Felix and just kind of the, the ups, the downs, the, the, you know, the Cy Young success and then failures of this team, never putting a playoff team around him. And, um, you know, even these last few years getting promoted to the bullpen, all these things, writing those things, you know, it's just been a constant, like, you know, psychoanalysis of a guy that, doesn't really want to let you in very often so I, I find it fascinating and I'm already like preparing to write kind of the end and what it all means and you know his failures here on some level and, and the things he accomplished I mean he's still the most decorated pitcher in Mariners history. Oh for sure but I thought your column was kind of like in a way like it's just like about the rise and fall of a great power it was almost like reading a a Greek tragedy, but anyhow, it was it was an interesting column. Let, let me ask you, Ryan, a, a, a kind of reflective question. You know the Mariners team so well. Looking back, do you think the Mariners made a mistake giving Felix a seven-year, one hundred seventy-five million dollar deal back after the twenty twelve season? Do you think that was? Do you think that would be looked back on as a historical mistake at all, Ryan? I mean, in a way, yeah. In some hindsight, even though you know, I didn't know that the downturn in the last four years would be as bad as it was. I mean, he fell off a cliff in a lot of ways. Um, and maybe they should have seen that coming based on kind of how Felix prepared and, and just kind of, you know, I, I wrote the story a few years ago about the frustrations of, with the new regime, just about Felix's off-season schedule and, and kind of his lackadaisical approach to conditioning during the offseason, during spring, and even during season. They they want, they expected more from him, and he didn't really know how to do that. Right. Because nobody had ever really, nobody had ever really told him that, you know. I, I think one of the biggest faults of this organization, and, and it was very prevalent under Bill Blavese, was the enabling of a lot of younger players to not have to adhere to certain guidelines when it came to everyone else. And and really just enabling them and allowing them to kind of operate under their own um, their own devices. I mean, Felix obviously was a, a superstar, and they let him kind of, you know, after the first I Young, he kind of, they let him do what he wanted to do in terms of preparation. But even it goes back to, like, guys like uh, Richie Saxon or Hineski Bancourt or, or Jose Lopez, they never held those guys accountable for how they handled themselves and prepared. And it led to that, you know, once you start allowing that to go down that road, 
you never get it back. And I think that was the big deal with Felix. Is like they they just they should have known that he wasn't that into kind of the preparation that he'd always relied on pure talent to get through. And at some point, talent and innings are going to win out. And I think that's what the bigger problem was. Well, you brought up some quality control issues that were pretty prevalent in a couple of the prior GM regimes. This is Paul Schneiderman, again, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with Seattle Times uh, Mariners beat writer Ryan, Ryan Divish. Um, Ryan, you know, as we know, Jerry DePoto, the Mariners general manager, used the term reimagining the roster. He says he wants to recreate the team, and he basically has done that by tearing down the 28 roster a lot. Let, let me ask you, Ryan, do you think instead of reimagining the roster completely almost, the Mariners could have maybe partially reimagined the roster and maybe kept the likes of Nelson Cruz and the team for another season or two rather than break it down so much? What's your take on this uh, almost complete reimagining of the roster? Yeah, I, 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 thought, I felt like they needed to do something different. Um, I mean, for them to, like, kept Canelo and, and Cruz and I brought back Cruz and kind of that base of the team. They would have had to spend another sixty-some million, I think, to really be good. And you know, that even then, they're, they're not good enough to beat the Astros, I don't think. And and you know, you're you're still playing for the second wild card ultimately because of how good the National the American League East is. So I I thought you know if, if they maybe wanted to push it, they could have made it work. Um, but you know, I think. There needed to be a calling of the roster, and I understood that the timing for it now. You're trying to capitalize on the highest value points of Diaz, Paxton, and then once you were able to trade Cano, you have to go, you know, go all out. And they were just done with Gene Segura from a personality standpoint, as much as a point standpoint. They also felt like he wasn't going to be able to, you know, the last couple of years of his contract, he's going to have to go to second base because he just wasn't functioning as shortstop as well as they planned, you know, in terms of, of, of conditioning and things like that. So I think they, they made the right decision. Honestly, they should have probably done this, you know, at least two different times. I mean, if you think about it, totally rebuilding, and it goes back to your question about Felix Hernandez getting the extension, there was a time where they could have probably got six prospects. I mean, if you think about what the Mayors gave up for Eric Bedard, think about how coveted Felix Hernandez oh, was yeah. in the Red Sox at one time. You know, if they really wanted to pull the trigger and do a rebuild, that would have been the time to do it, you know, whether it was after the 2009 season or even after the 2012 season. You trade, you get five, six guys, and you help kind of reestablish your farm system. Because at that time, too, you already had Walker and Paxton coming up through your system, so you had a baseline of talent. So maybe they should have made that rebuild a while ago instead of always just kind of trying to put band-aids on it. And I think that's kind of what you look at now. A partial rebuild or a partial reimagination is just a band-aid. You know, just tear it off. You know, pick the scab off, tear it off, start for fresh. I think that's what they should do. I mean, I, I know that it's not pretty to watch. My God, right. it's been horrible baseball. But I think that, you know, that's a product of it. And I wasn't always a big believer in tearing it down, mostly because I, I tried to remind fans, you're not going to like this in the first two years. You know, you always see the end point of where you want to get to. But I remember when the, I was there when the Astros were tearing it down and, and putting out a really inferior product and seeing what those games are like. And, and that's what we're seeing this year. Very true, very true. Well, I appreciate your analysis, and uh, you, you, I think you've almost convinced me that maybe a partial reimagining wouldn't have worked so well. Um, speaking of trades, th- there's some thinking that 
that the mayor, I've read a couple of your columns recently about Mike Leake and D. Gordon, but there's some thinking that some baseball people have that this might be the best time ever to trade Vogelback between now and July 31st. The Mariners might never see as much value for Vogelback as he may have right now. Do you buy that at all? Uh, not probably because, I mean, he's so limited. You know, he's barely a functional first baseman. I mean, they're using him out there. But for a, for a National League team, you just wouldn't you wouldn't really want to do it that way. You wouldn't want to have to play him out there every day. So that, that knocks half the field out of it. And then, really, really, how many teams are even trying to compete in the American League? What, seven, eight? I mean, that, that limits your field as well. I, I guess a team that maybe is at a rebuilding point like the Mariners, and they are trying to find a, a left-handed bat that they look, they don't have to pay very much money for it to be a foundational level piece. Sure, maybe that's it. But I, I just don't know. You know, I was looking, even if you look at who's, who's out there and who would need players that fit it, maybe the Rays, you know, they could use a DH. But they, you know, they, they kind of asked about it when Encarnacion earlier in the year. <laughs> I think they prefer to have a right-handed bat over a left-handed bat. Well, it's definitely baseball drama between now and the 31st before the, the major dead, trade deadline to see what happens. And I, I uh, we'll have to see what happens. So, you know, you mentioned something about a minute ago about teams that aren't playing very well. And, you know, baseball attendance is, has continuing to decline. And you look at the standings right now, Ryan, my gosh, I mean, some of these teams are like 80 games out of first place. I mean, you follow it more than I do, but I look at these, especially the American League. Do, what do you think, Ryan? Do you think that with so many teams trying – to build down their current roster to try to get draft picks and improve their payroll. Do you think this competitive balance issue is, is a factor in why baseball attendance is declining when you have some teams in major markets are just playing so bad? Do you see any connection with, with uh, the competitive balance issue and baseball attendance declining? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, they're not, you know, you have this many teams not putting a quality product on the field. People don't want to watch, you know, and, and there's a frustration level. And, you know, and you can only go so long. I mean, look at, you know, and even places like, you know, Pittsburgh and, and hasn't really completely invested. And they have an interesting team, but again, you're not seeing fans there. As you might. And even places like St. Louis, you know, was supposed to be baseball heaven and the, the best fans in the world. They're not selling out. They're not, their crowd numbers are down as well, too. I, I just think there is a fatigue of the losing, and I do think there's a fatigue of the, the pace of play in terms of the lack of action, and it's all home runs, strikeouts, and walks. I think also baseball is starting to price itself out into no real reason. They're $10 billion a year business. They have, you know, setting contracts, to, their local contracts with their TVs help, help them as well. I, I just think you're pricing your average fan out. I mean, if you're talking about a family and you want to go to a game and get decent tickets, you know, decent tickets for a family of four, you know, that's that's two hundred dollars right there. Oh yeah. And then two hundred dollars there. Then you got to pay forty, twenty-five to forty dollars in parts. And then, my God, you got to take out a loan to get a beer or to get a hot dog. And if you buy a hat or anything, I mean, it's just you can't. You're not getting the average fan that just on a walk up. I mean, it's a nice day. Let's go to the park because it's such a major investment and in money to just go one time a year or two times a year, and, and that's just ludicrous. I mean, it's just how much money do they need? You know, I you look at player salaries and how much ownership is making. You know, the revenue sharing. I, I just don't. There's going to be a point of critical mass, and maybe it comes during this 
the upcoming CBA in two years where they're having to negotiate this after the 2021 season and figure out what they're going to do. Because I, I just think you're, you're kind of you're giving fans less and less of a reason to come to the park game after game. And at some point, you know, people are just going to stop. All, all, all good points. I just... Just as a casual fan like me, I'm a pretty good fan. I don't follow it as close as you do, but I just see all these teams basically tanking, and it just it just seems like the product, uh, all these teams so far behind. It just kind of kind of raises well, you're, some you're questions. Still making, you're, you're charging major league prices for minor league product, right? I mean, that's not really ideal. All these 4A kind of rosters. Well, Ryan, we just got a couple minutes left. I can't believe how fast these interviews go. So, Ryan, you follow the game really closely. And if Ryan Divish were a commissioner had the powers to change Major League Baseball, here's a couple examples. What would you do if any of these things? Would you limit mound visits? Would you maybe require pitchers to face at least three batters? Would you reduce time between pit inning and pitching changes? Would you uh, change the shift rules? Would you want a shorter season? Would you allow batters to steal, try to steal first base? Give me some Ryan Divish ideas on how you would reform the game of baseball. Ryan, don't mean to cut you off. We got like 30 seconds left. Uh, what does the future hold for Ryan Divish? I just want to stay employed. That's really all that matters to me. Okay. Well, you keep it the good work, Ryan. Thank you so much for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Let's you and I stay in touch. Okay. Thanks, man. You too. Bye bye.